Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Social Action Briefing Podcast. Thank you, uh, for first and foremost, for listening to us. And tonight we have a special guest in um, celebration of Black History Month. I decided to interview an artist um, just to speak of how Black art have impacted American history. Um, you know, we often say Black history, but Black history is American history. Uh, so tonight we have a special guest, Franx Seuss, who is an artist in the Brooklyn, New York area. Um, so we're going to dive into his world of art and how art um, has impacted his life and who has inspired him uh, to become an artist, a great artist that he is. Uh, so, Frox, we're going to hear all about your world um, this evening. So let's start off with why art? Well, thank you for having me, Martine, um, to say um, to everyone, uh, it's a pleasure to be here and hopefully that, you know, this information can be useful. Um, I guess a brief history on my self would probably help frame some of my answers. Um, I am a Haitian immigrant and um, went to school here in America from age of nine, graduated with a BA sociology from Long Island University. Um, I have exhibitions throughout uh, the United States from coast to coast. In the past 20 years that I've committed to this endeavor, um, and marching forward, um, I think art is starting to, I guess, define itself in terms of the role it plays in my life. So to answer the question, why art? Um, I think it, it wasn't necessarily a conscious decision. Um, we grow into things and we develop into things. Um, I think a famous person said that everyone is an artist until they grow up, sort of say. And some people manage to retain that element of their childhood, um, that ability to play carefree and and let it kind of define itself. Um, in my case, um, I was an artist. I was interested in art, but not formally until later on in my life, um, primarily after undergrad. Um, things started happening that kind of steered me in that direction. Um, and I kind of just went with the flow. It felt right. Um, and it felt um, something about the whole process was very intuitive. And, you know, I became acutely aware of the fact that I was, you know, thriving in ways that I didn't think I could. Um, I was excited about what I was doing. I was excited about the challenges that came with it in terms of unknown and also gallery representation and things like that. Um, breaking through the gallery wall um, or the front door rather. Um, when I started late 90s, um, you know, those things were hurdles that were very difficult to traverse, um, and to some cases still today. Yeah, so uh, it's a work in progress. It's definitely a work in progress. 
But again, to clearly answer the question, why art? Um, art more or less, this, as cliche as this may sound, art chose me rather than me choosing art. That's interesting. So as gifted as you are in it, did you at least see like a hint of your craft as a child? As a child, I, one of my earliest childhood memories um, was the fact that I was able to write fluently um, and script letters and alphabets, um, whereas my brothers seemed like they were all left-handed um, when writing the same letters. So I knew very early on that I had this very tactile um, sense of connectivity um, when with idea and, and hand control and stuff like that. Um, as far as like third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, I was drawing characters from uh, Star Trek and Spider-Man. Um, I had just very intuitive connection. I had this very um, immediate kind of a thing for it. Um, so it was something that I'm very lucky that I had the ability to foster and and I think that was the crucial part of the whole thing. The fact that I was always in a position where I can pursue and stay connected to it and never got dissuaded from it, um, which is a big challenge for a lot of folks because keeping a practice that doesn't really pay until um, it does is a very difficult thing to do for a lot of people and a lot of people would give up. Um, it's not to say I never contemplated giving up, but at the same time, I never contemplated giving up. Right. And I and I can imagine, you know, we're talking about Black History Month. I understand that, you know, as for many Black artists from a long time now in, in history, that things have always been difficult, you know, for a Black person in general, Black artists. So I can imagine that walk definitely isn't easy. I'm sure, you know, you face challenges and, um, but you seem to have overcome a lot of them. And I'm sure there are still a lot of challenges today that you may face. Can you speak a little bit of those um, challenges, perhaps when you were starting to your journey now? Uh, well, in terms of, I guess, the challenges that I faced as an artist, as a minority, as an immigrant, um, you know, I struggle with, you know, identity, acceptance, and belonging as well. And so the challenges were everywhere and very pervasive in that manner. Um, and so as a minority, within a minority group of people. And I say that to say, as a Haitian immigrant, I was not encouraged to pursue art. There was nothing in my um, immediate surrounding in any format that said, go ahead, you know, we have you, we got, you know, you know, get it, you know, give it a college try, so to say, and you don't have to worry about this, you don't have to worry about that. No, it was not there like that. Um, it was definitely, um, an oddity, and I, and that's why I mean by a minority too, is the fact that 
um, in general, a lot of you know people of my generation and current generation um, was just not encouraged to pursue something so lofty and so abstract and you know the emphasis on survival and providing and putting food on the table came first in most households so when someone is pivoting over to a craft and as to pursue art um so the challenges were immediate internally and externally um because it was so abstract for a lot of people my parents my father in particular um you know it's something he never quite got used to. Um, it was something he couldn't understand or wrap his head around. Um, so on a more professional scale, um, the red tape of galleries and museums were, you know, as they are in every other sector of, the, of society, um, privilege come to a selected few and privilege, white privilege in particular, um, you know, dictated the tempo. So um, it, it required a lot of just, I guess, stubborn persistence. I knew deep down inside that um, I was doing something that I was encouraged to do internally. Um, so when I didn't want to, I did it because it gave me joy. It gave me you know, tenacity, excitement. And, and so I wasn't necessarily doing it to say, I'm going to do this for the next 20 years. I was doing it to say that I was immersing myself in the process. I was focusing on the day-to-day -day aspect of it and something to show for the day, something to show for the week, something to show for the month, something to show for the year, so to say. So chronologically, I moved from art shows at to small galleries and school um, galleries, uh, you know, like LIU, for example, my alma mater gave me a show. Um, so I did the college thing. So a lot of universities have great exhibition spaces. And so I did that for a while until I started going to, I guess, more mainstream or the commercial side of things and got picked up by a dealer um, and he was organizing a show um, across country. Um, and things kind of just piggybacked off each other. Um, one thing that I can also, is a standout in my resume, um, the Brooklyn Museum did a survey about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and um, artists in Brooklyn. Um, the curator from that exhibition to this day still keeps up with me. And um, so shows like that and, and a series of fortunate circumstances um, kind of just led me down this path um, because um, the challenges were real and they still are. And your art would be dismissed just solely based on the color of your skin. For somehow it wasn't art um, because there was no space and no validation in the mainstream for a lot of quote unquote black art or, or artists by a person of blackness or brown. And so it was very kind of pigeonholed. And, and, and again, those challenges for the most part still exist. Um, I think it comes down to the individual and their conviction. Right.
And um, thank you for sharing that. Um, giving the the challenges as you explain, you know, still stand. Um, how do you motivate yourself? How do you continue to inspire yourself to do the work? Well, motivation and inspiration, um, they kind of come in tandem because, you know, a new idea will wake you up in the middle of the night, mm. literally. And especially when it's an idea that's based on a problem you had with a particular, you know, train of thought or style of work, subject you wanted to tackle. And for me, and I can only speak for myself, it literally, literally would wake me up in the middle of the night and I would jot it down, a sketchbook or something like that. Um, so it's come in tandem. And I think the secret is to focus on the immediate and focus on the things that you can control. Um, if I were to focus on, you know, mainstream acceptance as a marker for success, I probably would have given this thing up a long time ago. And I think that's where the mistake is for a lot of folks their measure of success it has to come from inside not outside and art is a lifestyle I live as an artist and so my reward is not something that's waiting for me my reward is something that I receive on a daily basis uh, weekly basis monthly basis or whatever or whenever I have a great exhibition um, that I've been working on for a year or two years leading up to an exhibition and so those are the the markers of success, and they're very they're very um, continuous, opposing to waiting for a finish line, waiting for you know the floodgates to open, sort of say, or waiting for the Museum of Modern Art to give you a, a show or something like that, or a major gallery to pick you up, because those all those things come with conditions, and they right. come with conditions that you don't know of until you're immersed in it. And they can be very restricting to the point where you may get picked up by a major gallery and end up having to get a job at Target or Starbucks because your exhibitions are scheduled a year apart or two years apart and you're in an exclusive contract. So you have to wait two years before you have another show. And if your stuff is dormanted or stale during that time period, you have nothing coming in from the gallery. So your work is just sitting in their storage while they're focusing on more lucrative artists. Meanwhile, you have a deal by a major gallery and you're working and you're serving coffee. So there's all kinds of things that happen behind the scene. Um, you know, there's exceptions to every rule, of course, but success come on a daily. Success come by just maintaining your practice. Um, in my case, to be fortunate enough to have this studio um, and to be able to hold the studio down for the past 20 years. Um, to me, that's success. And and the, all that other stuff, it'll come when it comes. You can't really control it or worry about it. Right. And it's, it, you know what, it made me, it's making me realize that it's it sounds very similar to the music industry. So when you're talking about signing contracts with um, certain museums, it sounds like ultimately they own you and they own your art. Um, so there's kind of those conditions 
um, versus if you're working independently, you have more um, say with your work. Um, that's that's what it sounds like. Am I correct? Well, they own your market. You cannot sell independently. You can't have open studios and sell directly to a collector. You can't sell through another gallery. You can't sell through another curator. You can't sell through. So that's the way they control their brand or the artists and their stable. Is They control the work, the flow of the work. Right. They don't own the creative license of the work. So, you know, licensing and, and um, giving rights for publication and stuff like that. They don't go as far as that part of it because intellectual property, you know, ultimately is the title of the creator. And so, but in terms of the physical property, they control, you know, that as hard as they can. And contracts are 10 pages long. You need wow. a lawyer. You need a lawyer. I was just about to say, you need a lawyer for that. You can't um, even read the language. And so, um, so yeah, it, you know, the success is definitely the process and the process is definitely the success. And when that happens, it's great if it works out. But if it doesn't happen, you're still going to do what you're going to do. And in my case, I'm going to do what I'm going to do no matter what. Um, okay. You know, because that's the that's just the conviction and the and the way that I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, with um, I guess to to paint a picture of what does your day to day look like as an artist, can you give us some insight of what that is? Because right now you're sitting in your art studio. It's eight o'clock after eight o'clock at night. And you said sometimes you get an idea, you get up in the middle of the night and you just go for it. So, you know, what do, what does your day look like? Um, you know, it's, it's pretty mundane in a lot of regards. Um, and it varies based on, you know, the schedule in terms of child rearing and studio time and um, administrative time and just errands. So it's like everybody else's life in a lot of ways. Um, the, with the exception of the fact that I'm more or less my own boss and motivator. And so um, a typical day, a studio day is usually start, it really varies. Some days is very early, as early as 9 a.m. or 8.45. I'm at the studio, and some days it's after three. Um, the early days usually mean that I dropped off my kid at school, and then because of proximity to the studio, I just figure out my just go in. And so those days start pretty early. As like I said, eight forty-five, I'm usually in the door. Um, by nine fifteen, nine thirty, I'm working on something because it takes a minute to kind of decompress. Look around and see what's needed and what your you know marching orders are, and so it's a meditative moment about ten fifteen sometimes twenty minutes of just reflecting on the work that's been done and the work that needs to be done, um, and then I go at it. Base my pace is dictated based on deadlines coming up, and so 
um, so it really varies. Um, like last few months was pretty um, robust and driven because I have a show February 16 that I was working on or working for. And so, um, so those days were very kind of like methodical and, and very like um, time limit sort of say like, you know, it's getting close, it's getting close, you gotta. So I had to definitely hustle and motivate and, and really push. Um, I really had to make the days full as possible and get as much done as possible um, because there's so many things that have to be done before a show that, you know, between cataloging the work, photographing the work, framing the work, getting the work shipped, getting the work on site, getting the work installed, those things have to happen and be ready to go, you know, two, three, four weeks before the show. And so what seems like a lot of time can run out very fast. Uh, so again, a typical day involves coming to the studio, having breakfast, listening to music, uh, looking through my sketchbook, figuring out what I need to do, and then look on the wall to see where I'm at on the paintings that's currently in process. Are they like 50% done, 70% done, 90% done? Um, when I get to a, a painting to 85 to 95, then I really have to pull back and really micromanage and, and looking for detailing and final dots and final touch and stuff like that. Um, and um, some days, those days usually go to at least 7, 8 p.m. So we're looking at sometimes 12 hours, 12 hours. easy yeah. um, between breaks for you know go get food and da, 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 da. um and i wonder at times where the time went so you know it's eight o'clock and i'm like oh my god i need more time and i've already been here since eight o'clock yeah and we so, we never feel like we have enough time never never, never. never. and so and and part of me want to you know um you know there's it's a self-driven self-motivated thing that just kicks in and 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 you just gotta just ride it out so it's a lot of work from what i yeah. hear you you know talk about like the steps do you do you have people that come in and help um in terms of like getting the art pieces together um obviously you're painting them but if you're preparing for a show I'm sure there's other, like you mentioned, the other moving parts, shipping, putting them together, photographing, all of these things. Are there other people that come in and do these things? Yeah, it depends on the show and the gallery. They have people that come and take the work and in some cases photograph the work. It really depends. It varies from show to show and exhibition to exhibition. But in terms of a studio assistant, I don't have one of those. Um, a lot of my work is very, you know, micromanaged. Um, and there's, I just can't release that level of uh, trust and creativity to someone else at this time. And also as a financial thing too, uh, you would have to actually staff someone and pay them. Um, and they would come to your space and, you know, it really depends on, on, on the demand um, and the time right. in most cases. If I have a show that needs 20 pieces 
you know, and 10 pieces are 48 by 60. Um, you know, and it depends on how much time you have to get something like that together. You might need to get some help. And so, um, but me, because I'm full-time I'm, and I, I'm kind of always working on a show before I even know I'm having a show. Um, and so it's a little different for me when it comes to deadline. I'm usually halfway there already, sort of say, um, because I'm working to get the ideas out. Okay. I have a sketchbook with about 30 images right now, and I have eight of them done already, sort of say. Um, I may not do all 30, um, but I'm different in that regard. Self-motivated, kind of like, you know, I mean, it's, it's not to say I'm, not, I'm making it sound easy, but when you don't have a finish line and a target, you're just kind of shooting in the dark, so to say. And so sometimes you might feel like, oh, what's the point? I might as well not do this or whatever, whatever. But opportunities come to those who are ready. And nothing happened if there's no art. There's no show. There's nothing to talk about. There's nothing to sell. So if the work is not here, then pretty much 80% of what I do does not happen if the work is not here. So knowing that, I just find a way to kind of motivate or trick myself into, you know, and a lot of times when the new ideas come and the new formats come and looking at things and figure out different ways to do things, it kind of helps a lot. Yeah, so it sounds like, yeah, you have to stay ready because you just never know when the next opportunity is coming. Well, so. you do and you don't. You know, whether you do or not, you just have to be prepared. Right. Um, you know, if I get a call tomorrow and say, oh, okay, I'll give you a great example. Um, December, I got a call from um, the director of the African-American Museum in Charleston, um, South Carolina, saying that we're looking for a few pieces uh, um, for a permanent collection. Do you have anything? I was like, I'll be, you know, give me one second. You know, <laughs> I didn't have to go and create, you know, six pieces of work to send him to pick from. I already had, I just had to take photographs of them. And out of the six images that I sent, they selected one. And all that was, all that happened with, within the span of two hours. Between the phone call, taking the pictures, emailing it, and getting a response. This is a great example of being ready. Yeah. And this is a major painting, a major significant transaction, and in a major collection, a public collection that people can go and see and bring their kids and da da da. da. Now, if I had fumbled on that, I probably would be so mad that I wouldn't even be able to speak. That's how disappointing of myself I would have been if I had not been able to respond to a call like that. And so those are the things that I know based on experience that regardless of how monotonous and mundane the process can be, not necessarily the process, but the mechanics of, of it. Because there's creativity and then there's the actual mechanic that goes into connecting that creative idea to something tangible. Right. And, you know, so had I missed that, I would have been done. I would have been done. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because that museum in Charleston that you you talked about, um, 
I know it, it recently opened, right? right? Yeah. Right. So that's, that's major. Um, I'm definitely looking uh, um, forward to um, taking, you know, a trip there. Um, usually, you know, throughout the year, I'm, I'm down South at least, you know, two to three times visiting my, my best friend who lives actually in North Carolina. So when you mentioned that, I'll, I'm definitely, I'm excited to go there and visit and um, see the art pieces there. Um, last, maybe not last year, but two years ago, I had the opportunity to visit the African American Museum in Maryland. But that was more so close to Baltimore, I believe, because um, I know there's one in D.C. That's the huge one, right. and then there's a there's a small smaller one, and I believe is it was in Baltimore. So that okay. gives you more uh, like an idea of you know like uh, art pieces relating to slavery, things like that so that I got to um, visit. It was more so walking through history. That's how I often like, I see I see art, I see it as healing. Um, so art, I, I'm like so interested, always have been interested. I have some of your artwork from many years ago. I'm aging myself and probably aging you, but I still have them, but I purposely, you know, and talking about a celebration of black history, I purposely have these art pieces around my house for my children and not only myself, but I just remember kind of growing up and seeing some art pieces of, you know, black art mm -hmm. in a sense of representation of myself and our culture um, and just the black experience. And I think it's important. Um, so in talking about, you know, the, I guess, the importance of art, who have inspired you? Um, you know, maybe someone in the past or maybe people today who have inspired you when it comes to art? Um, well, when it comes to art and the importance of art um, and inspiration, um, you know, art is important. I guess I'll tackle that first for so many reasons. Um, one, educational, two, cultural, um, and three, you know, sort of like that independent voice. Um, in my opinion and experience, it really, it's a vehicle to really reinforce and, and, and trigger certain things in people that they either took for granted or just didn't know. Um, Nowadays, this new age of reckoning, um, the art wave and major art houses collecting African-American art is a trend right now. And um, largely because it's a journey to self-discovery and people are learning things about themselves that they thought they knew and they didn't. And, or they thought they knew the whole story and they realized they didn't. Um, we all think we know where we're from, but we don't. Um, so art has been this is important because it serves as this vehicle for investigation and learning, and or can be at least not always. Sometimes it's just debauchery and foolishness, but still, um, it expresses freedom and creativity. And I think that's a part that has to be ignited in people. Um, because you can easily become a robot and and you know, 
and just get trapped in this routines of mediocrity and without any real departure and chances to take a broader scope on things. So in my opinion, art really offers um, so many kind of diverse um, aspects to a person's life and culture enrichment that is absolutely necessary um, to make one, if, you know, to consider somebody, or cons for a person to consider themselves well-rounded, um, I think they have to um, traverse into the art realm, especially as an African-American. You kind of have to be able to say, in my opinion, you know, if, more than just Pablo Picasso as an artist. Um, <laughs> as, as, you know, as famous as he was and, but for an African-American person to call himself conscious and alert and proactive, and the only artist they can name is Pablo Picasso or Van Gogh because of his ear or something like that, is a miss, that's a big miss. Um, because you have a lot of very well-intended and well-heeled, well-placed African-American artists. And unfortunately, it's not necessarily pop culture. And so because it's not pop culture, it definitely requires exposure and, and access and education to some degree. And so it, it requires effort that for the most part, a lot of people just are not in those right circles or the interest is not there or whatever the reason is. Um, but artists like David Hammonds, um, Rashid Johnson, um, Kyle Walker, Nicolene um, Thompson, and these are current artists. Um, yeah. David Hammond is probably in his 60s and stuff like that. Um, and he's exhibited all over the world. Um, Kerry James Marshall, this, he's probably the one most of you may know because Puff Daddy bought one of his paintings about three years ago at auction. I remember that. Yeah. And that was a big splash. I remember um, that. And yeah. Swiss Beats was the architect behind the deal. And he's become a big art player um, yeah. and offering artists opportunities and platforms. Um, he has a art fair that's called No Commission, where he brings you know artists from all over the world to exhibit. And they don't take a commission. So they get sponsorship. And that's how they make money for the fair, not from sales from art. The sales from the art goes to the artist. Um, so things like that um, are very inspirational because it creates a whole nother um, sense of consciousness and reality. You realize that you're not working in a dead end avenue anymore. And, and for a long time, it felt like that for a lot of people that it was all a hobby and if you got lucky here and there. Um, so these artists like Rashid Johnson uh, and David Hammond and even Derek Adams. Um, Derek Adams did an NFT two years ago, which is a non-fungible token. And he did the album cover for Jay-Z and that was a very lucrative deal, I'm sure. Um, mm -hmm. And so these kind of like mainstream culture connections are coming into play are coming into the fold so to say and and what they do is they show you these artists in a way that we've never seen before outside of Jean-Michel Basquiat and we have artists now who have that same level of fanfare and excitement around them that serve as an example for people like myself or 
artists that are now coming up, that there's other people and they can choose different heroes to look up to, and opposing to the one or two that was force fed to them since you know preschool. I learned about Pablo Picasso and his blue period when I was like in elementary school. And so, and that was it. That was art history. It was Pablo Picasso was art history. And and so, <laughs> so it's funny in a lot of ways because, you know, it all comes down to privilege in a lot of these regards. And, and it comes down to how the whole conversation started. Um, opportunities were relegated to those few based on access, based on privilege and and white supremacy. Um, and you don't want to focus your whole existence based on a counteraction to white supremacy, but it's pervasive and everywhere. And you have to kind of really, you know, be aware of the fact that, you know, you can't take anything for granted and nothing is just going to be given to you. And yeah. even something as simple as, you know, admiring an artist, you know, that wasn't even given to you. It was like, you weren't even allowed to even think like that. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you are not even allowed to think outside, you know, the box, you know, these are the artists you should know because we deem them important and you should too. Yeah. So, but I, you know, so some of these people I mentioned are definitely some of my, you know, idols and heroes and da da da. Um, Ed Clark, who passed away two, three years ago, is another one, um, and from from the forties and fifties. Um, um, Nanette Carter and Tangsley. Um, I mean, there's a list. I mean, for me, it's longer because of that bias. I'm an artist. Right. For the, for the everyday person, there's now people they can actually names that you can say they would actually oh they I've heard of her. I've heard of Micheline Thompson. Right. And, you know, I've heard of um Kyle Walker because you know, or or somebody Simone Biles, not Simone Biles, Betsy Butler. She's yeah, I I've heard of her. That's a name that people now are becoming more familiar with. African American. She was a mom, a teacher, and about five or so years ago just started really coming on the scene um so it's interesting it's definitely interesting right and i you mentioned um jean-michel um basque i know he was also a haitian of haitian descent and puerto rican descent um i mean unfortunately he's no longer with us but when you mentioned that name it's like my ears perked up of like oh yes he's of haitian descent um but well, even awesome. him, you know, funny thing about him, his father is Haitian mm-hmm. and, you know, very uh, an accountant. And he didn't accept Jean-Michel for his career path. And it was very important for Jean-Michel to show his dad that he made it. And according to the documentary I saw, he, after one of his exhibitions in a major gallery in Soho, he had the limo driver take him home and, and honk the horn outside till his dad came <laughs> So you could see him, see him, that he's see him successful, and, right. and so it was very important to him um, to 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 break that you know stereotype that yeah. you know he was wasting his time and that this was a fruitless endeavor or whatever, whatever. And so right. he needs to be more practical. And so, and as a parent, I understand it, but you know, but it was one of those things that you just had to do. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I yeah, I can certainly relate um, because of the Haitian culture. It's more so, you know, it's it's like the parents are more concerned about your survival and, you know, being able to put food on the table. So they push for you to go to, you know, become a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a nurse, things like that. Um, so, you know, for myself going into social work, they're like, what's that? What are you going to do with that? So I can definitely relate and I have to educate them. And it's, and it's all about educating, you know, um, letting them know, no, I can support myself as a social worker. I'm changing the world. I'm working to change the world to be a better place. So I think once they start seeing, oh, okay, she's not calling us for money or anything. It's like, oh, okay. Oh yeah. She's successful. She's okay. <laughs> you know? So I, 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 I understand. I mean, as a parent myself, I could see, yes, you're, you're always going to be concerned whether your child is going to be okay to eat and survive. So I get it. But now I guess having the knowledge and just being exposed to other things, um, other career paths, it's just like, I just let my kids be, you know, I, I trust that they will be okay. Right. Yeah. Um, now with the, your, you talk about your art pieces, um, how do you decide which one is going to be on a show? Because I know artists are very protective about their artwork and it's like, you know, I'm sure you, there are certain pieces you hold dear to you. You're like, I'm not letting this go. I'm not selling it. I'm not showing this. How do you decide which one shows? Um, I mean, yeah, I get it. You know, artists can be emotionally attached to a work. Um, but then you have to stay true to your mission and your objective. And that's to get the word out and let's get the art out and the work. You want the work to be in circulation so that the work can then work for the whole process. And that means putting out your best work. And there are things that don't leave the studio no matter what. Um, they just didn't pass the grade or meet the must cut mustard or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, there are paintings that would get destroyed. Um, I think earlier on, I wasn't able to do or say those things. Um, but as I ventured, for the past decade, two decades, um, you become more strategic and methodic in your process. And you've learned to step away from certain things. Mm -hmm. And it's a, the decisions are made based on a, a combination of emotional attachment and practicality and what actually is saying what I needed to be saying and, and what's actually visibly intact according to my specific standards of execution. And so not to say that's the only way and not to say I'm always right, um, but I've learned to trust my instincts. I've learned to trust my gut. And at this stage, that's all you really have. Um, you, if you feel confident that this is the voice and this is the message, and then it's free to go. Um, and again, I produce so many works that at this stage in particular, um, I'm not as, you know, I don't go through that kind of withdrawal 
syndrome, sort of say, when in the absence of some of these pieces. It's quite the opposite. You know, I rejoice. And because that painting is marching onward and working and contributing to the process because people are going to see it. People are going to become aware of it and aware of me in the process. And so I've come to the point where you just really have to focus on the important things and the bigger things and the objective. And, and now I'm at the stage of thinking legacy and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so, so there is no time to be, you know, breastfeeding on a painting. Um, <laughs> you kind of have to just cut the cord and, and, and see if it works, you know? And so, yeah, it's maturity, it's growth, and uh, it's self-development. And it's something I had to learn to overcome because initially it was a lot more difficult and a lot, largely because I wasn't as prolific and my process was very different. Um, and it took me a long time to, to really come to terms with how to say what I'm trying to say and how to say well, not just how to say it, but what is it that I want to say in the first place? And so that was my stumbling block. I, for many years, I didn't know what I wanted to say. And, and then once I, say, once I was saying it, I didn't know why I was saying it. And I think finally, the last, you know, handful of years, I'm, I feel that like I'm at a point where I know exactly what I want to say. And I know exactly why I want to say it. And I'm primarily because I know how important it is to me personally. And that's where it's all coming from. Um, my message is, again, a journey about self-discovery. And my story is about learning who I am, you know, as an immigrant, as a, a minority. And, you know, moving chronologically through this process and trying to figure all these things out and, and how that story applies to other people and how does it apply to the outer and the greater world. And as unique as my perspective may be, a lot can a lot of people can look at it and have a point of reference and connect to it. And so, um, so that's what's helped me in terms of creating and producing is because I think that I'm finally at a point where I know what I want to say before I actually do the work. Whereas I would do the work and then figure out what was I saying there kind of a thing. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a whole different approach, right? Different method altogether. Right. So do you have a, um, and I, I think you, you basically spoke of it or of some, I was going to ask you some memorable, um, you know, projects that you had and why was it memorable? Um, um yeah, I think I think the Brooklyn Museum thing was one of those projects. Mm -hmm. Um I did a residency abroad in 2007 that was pretty big. Um I was gone for a month. I I was in the south of France for a month working on printmaking. Um I think that was one of the biggest um, you know trophies for me and one of the biggest nods on my resume was probably that project um because it got me out of this whole american space and looking at the world from a whole nother border and 
another perspective. Um, you know, and observing the challenges of being a minority from a whole nother, um, you know, stereotypical point of view kind of a thing. Um, maybe it's because I just can, couldn't understand enough of the language to know when I was being um, judged or, or, or singled out. But I felt relaxed in a way that was very immediate when compared to coming back home and walking to a restaurant and trying to get service. So, you know, so it was definitely impactful and, and memorable, but artistically as well, it gave me um, a whole another branch of work. Um, and it was in conjunction with the gallery that I was working with. And so it was a real push in, in, in the forward direction for the career and the work at, at, as well. And uh, so that was pretty big. And I mentioned Open House at the Brooklyn Museum. It was a pretty big exhibition um, in terms of at the time and what it served for, again, the resume and the the push forward because the whole thing is based on pushing forward and pushing forward and it's just been a you know and and staying in, in track pushing forward and staying in track and so and, and living and enjoying the process so yeah right well i have just to you know we're getting closer to the end here um the last question i wanted to ask um because you mentioned legacy Certainly, I feel like every artist wants to leave a legacy or something behind. And I'm asking you this evening, what do you want um, your legacy to be? Or what do you want, like, when you're, you know, God forbid, no longer here and art lives forever, in my opinion, what do you want the world to know? Well, <clears throat> again, you know, you think legacy and you think um, footprint, but it's, a lot of it is out of your hands, especially at that point. You're no longer here, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so what I hope is that, um, you know, it's uh, my name is added to the list of contributors and difference makers in my own minute kind of a way um, because it comes down to statistics in terms of reference and and if enough of us are doing the things that are designed to move the culture forward and and consciousness forward um, at the end of the day it equates to result and if you look at any major conscious movement, cultural movement um, in the world, in the history of the world, um, nothing ever happens without the collective. To effectuate any real change, to effectuate any real development, none of it happens without some kind of collective consciousness, collective consent, and collective awareness. And so I say that to say, if I am added to this kind of grouping of contributors, you know, you know, the cultural, you know, 
significant members of the past 20 years or so or so on. Um, I think recently Greg Tate, he was a writer, poet, musician. Um, he wrote for Village Voice, and that's when I first heard about him. He was in a band called Burnt Sugar. Um, Greg Tate was one of these people who passed away, I think, last year or not too long ago. And um, Mokata Museum made a big banner on the wall of a picture of him near Dance Africa. Not Dance Africa, near Brooklyn Academy of Music. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of people pass by and, and like, well, who is that? Kind of a thing. But then there are other people who pass by and like, oh my God, I can't believe he's gone. And right. so he was he was one of those voices, um, you know, that just spoke and listened to the to the beat of the time. And so I hope to somehow be included in a class of contributors. Um, but more importantly, that as a significant contributor in terms of he did it, he was there, he participated, he engaged and served as an example for somebody else and so forth and so on. Um, and then on a more personal note, um, you know, for my own offsprings and my own children to have a, a profound memory of my existence and, and what I left behind and leave some kind of connectivity there for them to you know, foster, move forward with in terms of the art, what it represented to me, how it uh, connected with all of us as a unit and that kind of stuff too. Um, so there's two sides to my legacy is the family and the immediate and then the general. And um, and I hope that, you know, if my name makes the list, I'll be very happy. Um, I mean, it's going to be on some list. I know that for a fact. <laughs> but well. is it going to be is it going to be on the list? And if it's going to be on the list, uh, I don't know. I can't control that. Uh, <laughs> but I was happy to try. I was definitely happy. This was a happy endeavor. And it has been. And it still is. A very um, fortunate, I should say as well, very fortunate and happy endeavor. It is not guaranteed. And, 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 and none of it was guaranteed. Um, but I definitely, like I said, I put the work. And um, and I try to be prepared. Right. Then thank you. Um, that, wait, that could be the legacy. He, he was always prepared. Yes, yes, definitely. Always prepared, um, which you, that's so important. I think that's anything in life, you know? When you think about whatever you're pursuing, always be prepared. If I'm taking anything away from this, that's definitely one of the things is always be prepared because you just never know who's calling about something. Um, I wanted to give you the opportunity. Of course, you mentioned you have a show coming up on February 16th. Um, you could feel free to let the people know where it's going to be, time, what, what does, you know, what, you know, what does it cost? How can we support you? You can give your information, IG, Facebook. How can we support? Well, I'm on IG at Desus Art on IG. The exhibition is February 16, Thursday from 6 to 9 in Lower Manhattan. And the place is called Anderson Contemporary. Okay. Um, the address, the direct address, I would have to look it up on my phone which is um which i'm talking on um and um and yeah it's going to be up for two months 
Um, but the opening reception and party and da -da -da is going to be on the 16th, uh, Thursday, um, from 6 to 9. 6 to 9. Okay. It's and a group, It's a group show. Uh, it's myself and three other artists. And um, we're looking to have a good time. So Okay. Can you please... Can sorry, say that again. Hopefully people can make it. Yes. Please go out and support. Um also give your IG name again, spell it out for those who want to follow. <laughs> hey, Seuss Art, D-E-C-E-U-S-A-R-T, De Seuss Art. De Seuss Art. Yeah. There you go. Well, thank you again um, for joining us on the Social Action Briefing Podcast. It was a pleasure um speaking with you um you know i i've always been a fan i'm a fan i support your art you're amazing um this is 20 plus years of experience i hope people are out there who are listening please go support mr Dussus. um go see him at his art show february 16th he mentioned february 16th at anderson contemporary um, in lower manhattan and that's from six to nine. And thank you all for joining us this evening and listening. Talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.